0: Hello again. Thanks for joining us. This is Space Nuts. Stop laughing at me, Fred. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host. It's great to have your company on this edition, uh, episode 343. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk about some Australian physicists. Didn't know we had any. Uh, They've been looking into when carbon started forming in the universe, which was a couple of weeks ago, I believe. And uh, there's a lonely galaxy that uh, shouldn't be alone. Why? Well, it's got something to do with cannibalism. And we'll be dealing with some audience questions. We've uh, had a couple of questions pop up this week about quantum entanglement. So we'll be tangling all that up and unraveling it and merging black holes. Not anything to do with the fact that it happens, but why does it happen? People want to know. Well, one person does. Nobody else really cares. That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts.
1: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10 Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three two, one. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good.
0: And joining me, as always, is his good self, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. How have you been? I'm mm, past week. quite well, thanks. It's my grandson's birthday today. He's eight <laughs> and his name is Nate. And today is going to be great and I won't be late his party <laughs> same joke i told on the radio this morning he actually heard no, it i didn't think he even listened no there you go oh that's great and his um, birthday Nate. by the way his birthday is uh 15 he was born oh in there you go March 2015 and my yeah. youngest son was born 9797 so
2: oh, interesting
0: numbers in our in our interesting family. numbers yes yeah. yes indeed there yeah. are Fifteen, three, fifteen, pretty good <laughs>
2: and how are you oh well thank you yeah. very well thanks yeah. i um had a nice um uh, encounter with our good friend david Astle on oh. sunday evening uh on the radio which was Wonderful. slightly unexpected but nice nice to have uh he as always, was very complimentary about Space Nuts. So, yeah, shout out to David uh, from uh, Andrew and myself. Yeah, hi, Dave. That's terrific.
0: Now, um, we might as well get straight into the guts of the program, Fred. Not
2: much else to do, really, is no, there? No, no. I was going no, to make no. some
0: coffee and maybe yeah. have a big yeah. bit of it, but I'll uh, we'll do that later. Yeah. Yeah, Um, later. Australian astrophysicists. I thought I didn't know we had any, but we might have one or two. Uh, They've been looking into uh, how carbon started forming in the universe. Now, this is very important because we're a carbon-based
2: life form, are we not? We are. Yes, we're made of uh, organic molecules, which are molecules that contain carbon. So Mm. it is important and uh this is a really interesting piece of work uh the lead uh, author is rebecca davis who is at uh, swinburne university of technology in melbourne it's a fairly large um uh, collaboration that has done this work but uh, she's the lead author on the paper uh and it's all about uh, probing the evolution of carbon in the universe. And uh, as you've just highlighted, carbon is very important. Uh, So it's nice to know where it came from. And we do know where it came from. We know that it came from uh, the the nuclear processes in stars because that's where all the elements come from, with the exception of hydrogen uh, and some helium and some small amounts of other stuff like lithium. Uh, These uh, elements, uh, they were formed in the Big Bang, uh, but the rest, all the rest, which we uh, often call the heavy elements, but astronomers peculiarly—and I think we've talked about this yes. before—refer to them as metals. Yeah. Anything that's not hydrogen or helium is a metal. Oh, oxygen. So, the metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in the world of astronomy, it is. That's right. No, that explains, anyway, that explains the heavy breathing. <laughs> well, I love it. Terrible. I love it. You should. You should be on the radio. Oh, Andy. Sh- I should. <laughs> Um, so uh, I just picked up the wrong story here. Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: while you're, doing, while you're looking for it, I, I read a story today about a uh, radio presenter <laughs> who's just broken the Guinness World Record for the longest time on air in a career. She started in uh, I can't remember, but she's from Texas and she's just racked up like near seventy three, seventy four years as a radio. Player. Whoa! Started at the oh. age of twelve. So to that catch up with her, fantastic. I've got to keep going until I'm into my nineties. <laughs>
2: That a couple of uh, weeks away. I was going to say you don't have long to wait. Any <laughs> <That's all right. laughs> anyway, that's another story. It so, um, uh, uh, Dr. Rebecca Davis and her colleagues, what they've done is, uh, how, you know, how do you probe the evolution of something like carbon in in the universe? And the trick is to observe very distant bright objects. Uh, and the particular bright objects that they observed were quasars quasars are almost like beacons in space they were very common in the early universe they they are basically the result of uh, black holes in the centers of galaxies young galaxies uh, gobbling up lots of material and emitting lots of radiation uh, so quasars are detectable over vast cosmic distances so when you look at you know quasars perhaps at distances of Twelve or thirteen billion light years you' you're looking back in time by that amount um but what you find is uh the light of the quasar on its journey to us uh in the present time as it's jo- as it has made its way through space uh passes through uh the basically the the gassy environment of the universe the intergalactic gas uh within the universe and that gas. Imprints on the light, what it's made of, uh, and it's such a brilliant trick because um, this is all about redshift. So this this imprint from different distances, looking back in time, gets stamped on the spectrum of a of a quasar at different places, which you can immediately identify as being a different era back in the past. And so what they've done, <laughs> I saw that. Yeah, I've just uh, in my head. <laughs> it's it's yeah it's um, it's a very neat trick it, it gives you you know it gives you this handle on essentially the way things have changed uh, over cosmic time yeah. so what they've done is they've looked at the the signature of of carbon over very long periods and they found that uh, in the early universe uh, there was a lot of cold carbon uh, which uh, was sort of replaced as the universe evolved by warm carbon (laughs) now you might well ask Andrew how can you tell the difference between the two well I'm really glad you asked me that Uh, because um, uh, it's all about what we call the ionization state the carbon how many electrons it's lost because of temperature yeah and so I think uh, if I uh, I've got this working out in my head properly. The warm carbon is is carbon four. That's uh, an ionisation level of four, lost four electrons, something like that. Uh, and the cold carbon is carbon two. And there was more carbon two in the early universe than than later on. Um, so uh, the question is, why is it so? Okay. And there are Professor two. Julius th- Sumner Miller would have asked the yeah, question, as he would have asked. That's right. Yeah. There's a. A name to uh, to conjure with. Yeah, I never knew. I never knew him actually. Yeah. Uh, no, and and I arrived in Australia kind of after the Julius Sumner Miller era. I just loved uh, watching him on TV after school. Yeah, yeah, his
0: science show. It was fantastic.
2: Yeah, I, 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 that's what everybody says, and I, I wish I'd been there to yeah. see it. It was like a mad professor. He, he,
0: yeah, he. He obviously got all your hair, Fred, because he's well, he <laughs> he had like, more what, Einstein. But, uh, On on haircut,
2: yeah, yeah. Uh, There was a fellow at the um, UN when I was there last month who looked like Einstein. (laughs) I kept wondering, is that Einstein? He's sitting next next to Elvis. (laughs) 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 Maybe he was. Did he see, Elvis said, "No, I didn't." (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, the so the the two theories, um, and I'm going to quote here from Cosmos Magazine, which has got this very, uh, very um, succinct and way of putting it. I should uh, credit the author, who is uh, Efrem Yazgin. Uh, He is the author of this article on Cosmos magazine. Uh, What he says is two theories have been put forward to explain the increase of warm carbon. First is that carbon became more abundant purely because it was being formed through nuclear fusion in the young universe's stars, in other words, that first burst of star formation at the end of the universe's dark ages, when the first stars formed, um, maybe that's where it—you uh, know—what w- what made it uh, what made it warm. Um, what what, um, Rebecca Davis goes on to say is during the period when the first stars and galaxies are forming a lot of heavy elements are forming because we never had carbon before we had stars one possible reason for this rapid rise is just that we're seeing the products of the first generation of stars but and again I'm quoting uh, from the Cosmos article that doesn't quite account for evidence in the study which shows that cool carbon decreased in the same period Uh, and the, the suggestion is that this perhaps was uh, meant there were two phases of carbon evolution a rise uh, when the first stars kicked in followed by a plateau and so um that's essentially where the measurements led them to this uh, uh this conundrum uh how you know why why do we find this drop in the amount of warm, uh, cold carbon compared with the amount of uh of the, the drop in the amount of cold carbon compared with the amount of warm carbon. And the jury appears to be still out. Oh. Uh, I think it's there's a number of ideas. Um, one of the a nice quote from uh, Rebecca Davis, our results are consistent with recent studies showing that the amount of neutral hydrogen, which is just cold hydrogen, in intergalactic space decreases rapidly around the same time. And a a, a nice note looking to the future, this research also paves the the way for future investigations with the Square Kilometre Array, which aims to directly detect emissions from neutral hydrogen during this key phase of the universe's history. So uh, maybe it's not going to be until we've got the Square Kilometre Array later in the decade that we'll find out why this conundrum occurred with the carbon. Wow, it is interesting though, and it's... um...
0: Uh, yeah, it's it's opened, I suppose, more questions, as these discoveries tend to do. But there, there appears to be a smoking gun, I suppose.
2: Uh, well, yes, since um, smoke is usually carbon, uh, yeah. often carbon, that's probably right. <laughs> I'm sure. Depends on, depends on what's burning.
0: <laughs> now, uh, we are um, going out live on uh, YouTube and Patreon And uh, have you got time for an off-the-cuff question from one of our uh, listeners? Uh, This this is a YouTuber called Ghost81. Uh, Quick question for Professor Watson: If you jump on the moon, Miranda, you can jump 57 meters high. What happens when you land? Would it be slow, graceful,
2: or an accelerating death dive? (laughs) Good question. Uh, Yeah, it would be. It would. You probably have the same um, impact, you know, feeling as if you jumped on Earth. Oh. Because what you're doing is you're jumping as high as you can. You jump as high as you can on Earth and you'll, you'll, you will land. You might strain, certainly if you were me, you'd strain your knees. I can tell you, I don't jump anymore. But um, but it would be a soft landing as it would be on Miranda. Right. Uh, and it's because what you're talking about here is the acceleration due to gravity, uh, which is much, much lower in the, on a moon like that. So you get up to your 57 metres and you gracefully come back down again and land as though you were a ballet dancer
0: finishing a pirouette. Okay. I mean, if you jump from 57 metres on Earth, you'd probably Earth, go it, splat. It,
2: it, you would go splat. that's, that's on right. Moran, you'd probably Moran. land reasonably safely. Yep. You'd land like, like you would if you were jumping as high as you possibly could here on Earth. Okay. Fair point. All except, right, except more slowly. It's lovely, all a Lovely question. It's all a
0: lovely question. Mm, thanks for the question. Lovely to hear from you. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson.
1: Zero G and I
3: feel fine. Space nuts.
0: Yes, indeed. And we continue with uh, our next topic, and it's uh, a lonely galaxy. Lots of songs have been written about this poor fellow. Uh, but uh, this is a, a galaxy that's um, far, far away and uh, should not be by itself. That's what's weird about
2: this story. So, what's happening here, Fred? Uh, yeah, uh, probably as you alluded to at the beginning, a case of extreme galactic cannibalism. But yep. the the story is more complicated than that, uh, and it's um, it's a nice, quite a nice story. I love the. Uh, the headline on Science Alert This distant galaxy is all alone in space because it ate its friends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that it up. I like the name of the author, Michelle Starr. What a great name for
2: science. Oh, yeah, Michelle's astronomy. a classic. That's right. She, <laughs> um, I had a colleague, uh, well, many colleagues who've got names associated with astronomy. Peter Starr used to run the Warren Bungal Observatory on the Kundabarabran. And uh, one of my favourites is a colleague from the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh, or the University of Edinburgh, as he was, Alan Heavens. Oh wow, was very appropriate.
0: I still, and I it, still can't <laughs> get past one of the best names in a job that I've ever heard. It's an Australian uh, meteorologist works for the Bureau of Meteorology. Her name was Gina Weatherhead. Oh yeah, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Clutz. Used to do radio <laughs> reports. Gina Weatherhead. Yeah. I think she got married, so I don't know if she kept it. <laughs> I would have kept it. <laughs>
2: uh um nominative determinism is what it's called, isn't it? <laughs> it's where your name determines what you' what you do <laughs> yeah all
0: right well, i'm just uh, clearing in a
2: bunch of trees apparently and I'm just the son of what so there you go yeah. <laughs> uh anyway, back to this story about this uh, hungry galaxy um and one of the things I like about this is um this particular galaxy has the elegant name of three c two two nine seven Uh, And the 3C in front of it uh, tells you that it's what it is. It's the 297th galaxy in the third catalogue of Cambridge or the third Cambridge catalogue of radio sources, which dates back to the 1960s. It might even be the 50s, actually, when this catalogue was being prepared. It could be the 50s. So this is a galaxy that has been observed uh, for a very long time. It's a very bright galaxy um and in fact it's again we we talked about quasars uh in our last story it's it, it's effectively a quasar uh it it's so it's radio loud that's why it's in the radio uh, castle the third cambridge catalog of radio sources uh but it's also it also emits visible light so the quasar is the basically the black hole at the center of this object uh, that 's a supermassive black hole it 's scoffing material so so quickly that it ab- absolutely beams out light um you know and quasars are the the, the brightest objects in the universe at least uh, in terms of the, the the fact that they keep on shining continuously yeah. so um what 's odd about this galaxy well uh it is a galaxy that uh you would normally associate with a cluster, a large cluster of galaxies, and um, how do you know uh, that it will be in a cluster? Well, galaxies of this size seldom come alone, and uh, a, 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 a galaxy in a large cluster is usually surrounded by uh, by basically uh, high temperature gas, uh, and that high temperature gas is there around three C two nine seven. Uh, it's been observed by the Chandra X-ray Observatory, uh, a space telescope that looks at high-energy radiation, uh, and so there is there is uh, you know there is the the detection of this high-energy gas, high high-temperature gas, around this lonely galaxy, and that's the uh, the bit where it's a misfit because normally. Uh, with that high temperature gas around it, it would be part of a large cluster and there'll be several galaxies of its size uh in the middle of that cluster yeah. uh, there's there's other evidence as well that came from chandra that that that, that it 's within a huge cloud of gas because some of the jets of material that are being squirted out of the black hole are actually bent uh because they've they 've hit you know they 've hit the uh, uh the, the flow of the interstellar gas uh one of them has illuminated a a bright spot of interstellar gas that's, um, that's uh, I think it's 140,000 light-years away from the galaxy itself. The beam of radiation coming from the black hole has hit this other uh, cloud of gas, and uh, once again, it's emitting X-rays. So all the evidence is there, suggesting this lonely galaxy sits in a giant gas cloud that would normally be populated by other galaxies. Now, Andrew, well, there's yeah. a twist to the story here. Right. <laughs> because... When you look at it in a, in a, in big telescopes, you can see that it's surrounded by other galaxies. Um, except, sorry, say again, infrared. Uh, the prob- probably are infrared. Actually, uh, in- the observations that have been made, because this thing's at a distance of nine point two billion light years, so yeah. it's, its its light has been well redshifted. Uh, but the 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 answer here, and the um, the twist in the story is that the uh uh astronomers who I haven't mentioned in this in this story um uh I think it's led from the University of Torino in Italy by Valentina Missaglia. Uh, and uh, actually uh, there's a nice quote from uh from Valentina uh she says it seems that we have a galaxy cluster that is missing all of its galaxies we expected to see at least a dozen galaxies about the size of the milky way yet we see only one wow. uh which is kind of what i just said but um the 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 reason so what i said was yes there are <clears throat> there are other galaxies around it but what um valentina and her co- collaborators did was went to the gemini observatory uh on Kea in Hawaii, which has two 10-meter-class telescopes, and used a spectrograph to measure the redshift and hence the distance of these other galaxies. There are 19 of them surrounding 3C297, and it turns out that all of those other galaxies are at different distances from 3C297, so they're just line-of-sight coincidences. They are not uh, anywhere near 3C297, and so they're not, you know, they're not the missing galaxies in this cluster. And so that galaxy is really all alone. And what they are, de- uh, de- what they've determined from these observations, that this is an object uh, which is usually called, uh, I think it's called a fossil cluster. I think that's how they describe them. Yeah. Um, uh, and a fossil cluster is one that was once a cluster of galaxies but one galaxy has had such a powerful uh, gravitational pull that it's gobbled up all the other ones uh, which have now become part of that uh, that one central galaxy so um it is uh you know this this is uh the 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 outcome of this uh, of this um research Actually, I think the normal term is a fossil group rather than a fossil cluster. But yeah, yeah, you, get you, the, you, you get the
0: drift. Well, um, You, me, and Hugh make up a fossil cluster. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I guess. I guess we do. Yes, that's true. Cluster of fossils. Well, there you go. You're um, mad of it, though. When's Hugh going to get really annoyed with you, Andrew? That's what I want to know. Oh, All I'd these dance, years ago, Andrew. when he a mock <laughs> at the ABC. So, yeah. <laughs> are you sure? Oh dear! That's the good thing about fossils; they don't tend to get annoyed that much. No, no. Um, so, uh, and but there's still a uh, you know there is another aspect to the story that, that that makes this a kind of record breaker because this is, as I said, it's nine point two a look back time of nine point two billion years. Yeah, and it's actually the earliest fossil group or fossil cluster that astronomers have found um, because it was thought that these sorts of events—galaxies uh, gobbling up their their uh, partners and friends. Uh, only happened relatively recently in the universe, but this shows that it actually occurs much earlier in the universe than, than astronomers have thought.
0: Mm. How big
2: is it, did you say? Big. Uh, it's um, it's about the size of the Milky Way, I think. Yeah. It's that so does that sort of- suggest
0: that before all this started, it was much smaller
2: or... Yeah. Mm. Yes. It, that, yeah. That's right. That it would have been a more modest galaxy. It may even be bigger than the Milky Way. The kind of the, around the size of the Andromeda galaxy. So, which is, what would have given it the power to be the dominant in that area? Um, it, it's a, gr- a great question. Probably, you know, it would have started off by it would have been surrounded by probably a hundred satellite galaxies. We think that that's uh, you know one of the consequences of galaxy formation that you get quite often get a big spiral with lots of satellites around it. yeah. And the big spiral begins by eating them all up, and that's what's happening with the Milky Way. It's gobbling up the two Magellanic clouds. Uh, they're being disrupted tidally and will form part of the halo of our galaxy in a few uh, hundred million years. Um, but um, that's just the start of the process. Uh, and Then if you've got other smaller galaxies, and I guess the analog in our in our, uh local group of galaxies, is our own galaxy and Andromeda, well, uh, which are whizzing towards each other at, I don't know, 300 kilometers per second. I think it is something like that. Andromeda is a bigger galaxy than ours. And what will wind up when this collision occurs in three or four billion years is there will be a um, a combination of the Milky Way and Andromeda, which is already being called Milcom. I think it's Milcomeda. I think it's usually called something like that. It's horrible. It's, horrible. it's or- it's <laughs> horrible. Yeah, it is horrible. Uh, but that will be a, a single galaxy. And then it'll probably gobble up. Oh, there's another galaxy called M33, which is another spiral galaxy, smaller than both the Milky Way and Andromeda. And that'll probably get sucked in as well. Yeah. So we, I, I think, have, are already seeing the star of our galaxy becoming part of a fossil group. But that, but remember where the universe is now 13.8 billion years old, and that's the time that you kind of expect these things to be happening like now whereas this one occurred 9.2 billion years ago so it's uh, it it is quite an interesting observation yeah. um milkometer.
0: i i i guess it's a, is it better than flipping it over and becoming amway
2: which <laughs> i think doesn't work i don't think that works i don't know i, don't know. I think millcometer it's a bit more pure than I'm wearing, I would think. <laughs> oh,
0: dear. Yeah. Um, no. I wonder
2: if it's skim or... <laughs> what, what do you get of skimming going on, I suppose? Scumida. Skomida might do it. Oh. No, that's not, no, That's horrible. Full too. Full, full creamometer. No. no was, um, the, the thing about
0: this lonely galaxy is that it's not going to be the only lonely galaxy in the far distant future because we'll all become lonely galaxies. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. We're which, all on the way to it. Yeah, which will be rather sad. Right. But um, I don't know if we'll be around to see that because who knows what the future holds. But, uh, yeah, a fascinating story. And, and uh, if you do want to uh, have a, a read of that, it's on the sciencealert.com website, sciencealert.com. Uh, and, um, yeah, you can chase it up there. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson.
1: Three, two, one. Space Nuts.
2: Guess what, Fred? Uh, question time. Question time. Hey, look, I'm, oh, I'm on fire Although today. Although we've already done <laughs>
0: one, but that was from <laughs> a live studio audience. Uh, we're going to do three questions today, but two of them basically ask similar things about quantum entanglement. So I I, I think the best way to play this would be to tackle them one at a time. Uh, so the first question comes from Evan.
3: Hi, Andrew and Professor Watson. Evan Carlo here from Newcastle, Australia. My question is related to quantum entanglement. Suppose we have a set of quantum entangled coins in two black boxes, one spinning clockwise and the other spinning counterclockwise. Fred has one of the boxes here on Earth. Andrew gets a ticket on a rocket to Mars and brings one of the boxes with him. Will the entanglement collapse as soon as either Fred or Andrew open their box and look at one of the coins? If so, is that message somehow going faster than the speed of light, given at quickest it takes three minutes for light to go between Earth and Mars? Oof, my brain hurts. Love your podcast, Jans. Keep it up. Good stuff.
0: Um, Evan, I think your brain hurts because the supercars were in Newcastle last weekend. And <laughs> they're pretty darn loud, those V8s. It was nice to see you. Um, I, I come from Maitland, which is only you know half yeah. an hour's drive up the right. road from Newcastle, so I know Newcastle well. It's a beautiful city too. Absolutely glorious. Uh, I
2: was there at the weekend. Were you? Yeah, well, I was. Nice place. Not for the supercars, but my son, one of my sons lives there, William. Oh, okay. Did you oh, hear the lizard. cars you should have? No, but I heard the jets from Williamtown oh, cool. flying over the supercars. Yeah. yeah. And I, in fact, saw one of them as we were getting on the train. It we went up by train, you know. Yes. Well, it's easy by train to get there. It is. It is. It's nice. It's yeah. six
0: hours to get to Sydney by train from where I am. That's only because <laughs> every time it hits a hill, we have to get out and push. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, quantum entanglement coins. So you've got the clockwise one in your box on Earth and I've got the anti-clockwise one in my box and then I go to Mars. What happens?
2: <laughs> uh, well, that's it's exactly what Evan says. Um, uh, but it is... it's it is. I mean, it's it's an interesting aspect Uh because P, the, the 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 real physicists not people like me <laughs> don't see um entanglement as uh as as basically um contradicting the speed limit of the universe which is the speed limit of the speed of light uh because what they're saying is that that entanglement um it, it's sort of preordained by the entanglement itself as to what your your coin's going to look like when you look at it. So uh, it, the, it, the deconvolution bit is when it stops being a quantum object. Uh, and that's when I look at mine, it stops being a quantum object. Wow. But you can look at yours at any time uh, and you will find that the spin's in the opposite direction because that's the way it was when the two were created. If you see what I mean, it's not that a message is being sent saying, "Hey, Fred's looked at his looked in his box," um, because you've got to look in your box too to know that it's called to maintain, called to... <laughs> I Can tell by the expression on your face. Yeah, that I... I'm digging myself deeper into the hole. What <laughs> yeah. Evan's headache. Yeah, it gives me a headache as well, Evan. Um, you know, it um it it is it is a strange and wondrous phenomenon. Uh, uh, which I think we are, well we clearly don't understand it properly, although the the quantum physicists are quite comfortable with it and they are using it, entanglement's being used as you know, in cryptography and things of that sort. So
0: um yeah, I think they sit in their canteen and and when they make their tea, one of them stirs it clockwise, and the other stirs it anti-clockwise. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. could be. right. That's yeah. probably what happens. But uh, I'm
2: I'm none the wiser after that, to be honest. <laughs> no, I don't think Evan will be either. Um, maybe I should lift my game. Really, shouldn't I? I should I should um, look at the equations and find out what they tell us. <laughs> well, if you could figure it out, you'd probably win a Nobel Prize,
0: wouldn't you? Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, that'd be really good. <laughs> Yeah, there's room on my trophy cabinet
2: for one. Yes, yes, we could, we'd definitely share it, Andrew. Yes, it uh, would have to be shared. That's L- it, would, it would probably be a, an entangled Nobel Prize as well. Maybe,
0: yes. <laughs> uh, thank you, Evan. Um, and sorry, I couldn't <laughs> answer it, but uh, we're going to get even more confused now because David is also asking a sort of a combo question about light
3: and quantum entanglement. Hey guys, my name is David. I'm from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan in Canada. Um, I want to say first of all, thanks for the podcast. Uh, I'm new to the whole science space universe or our multiverse I guess. <laughs> and I've been learning about through few as a podcast so thank you for that. Um, I have a couple of questions. Uh, first question was I believe it was in January of 2022 uh, where scientists shot a bunch of light at each other and the energy output was more than the input. Uh, would this in any way tie to the theory of black holes, white holes, in the sense that black holes consume a bunch of energy, including light, and the output is more than the input, in the sense that it creates the entire universe through the, through the white hole? Uh, maybe that's a stupid question. Uh, let me know. And secondly, um, staying on the subject of black holes, um, if one of two particles that are quantumly entangled enter a black hole, would they still be quantumly entangled or I guess what, what kind of happens to that? Um, once again, thanks again for the podcast, guys, and um, look forward to hearing the answers.
0: Wow. Thanks, David. They were deep questions. <laughs> I, I do yeah. remember hearing about that experiment where they pointed light at each other and the output was higher than the input, but I can't remember the, the details. Um, have you heard of anything like that, Fred?
2: Oh yeah! In fact, we talked about it. I Uh, thought we did. Say how good my memory is. Yeah. So it's the um, it's the uh, it's the sorry, I'm just reading something here. It's the fusion reaction, uh, which was was it Lawrence Livermore Lab, I think. Uh, So they actually generated uh, a fusion reaction for the first time that yielded more energy. Uh, that was put into it. Now, this Excellent. is the kind of holy grail of of uh, energy production. If we can bring about nuclear fusion yeah. and control it, uh, then it's a clean source of energy that's uh, almost infinite, not quite infinite, but it's, it's what powers the sun, uh, this transition of uh, making hydrogen atoms into helium atoms and and reaping the, the slight percentage of mass loss that there is in that reaction uh, that turns into energy. Uh, and it turns because because the m for mass is multiplied by the square speed of light squared, uh, as in E equals mc squared. You've got huge amounts of energy coming out. Uh, the problem is sustaining the temperatures that you need to make that work. And uh, uh, so the the you know the promise of nuclear f- uh, energy from nuclear fusion is still, as it has been for many years, probably fifty years away. Uh, there, but this was the first time that, uh, you know, with all the experimental controls and everything, you can guarantee that uh, that fusion um, has taken place and that you have generated more energy, only briefly, really? but you generated more energy than you put in. So it's a milestone. Um, I was talking, interestingly, to nuclear physicists when I was at the UN back in February Um and uh, because i sat in on some meetings about nuclear power sources in space which were really interesting yeah and um there was certainly a feeling among those physicists that the lawrence livermore laboratory if i'm corrected saying that's where this work was done was really um you know uh, milking the hype as much as they could uh for this for this uh event and were i think getting um these people felt they were getting more um vibes out of it than possibly they should have done because they said this was entirely expected that you you know if you clout these two lasers together uh, or laser beams together at high enough energies then you're gonna get nuclear fusion. But I think the world they, they did they, they did agree that it's still a milestone. Wow. Um so just to um um sort of close the loop on it, there is a giant ex European experiment uh going on in the south of france called iter uh and i can't remember what iter stands for i t e r uh and it's about sustained fu- fusion reactions they that inst- that machine has been being built for a very long time um we well, probably more than a decade ago i actually talked to one of the physicists working there who was a strange and interesting person um, but uh, it that will probably eventually generate a fusion power, or demonstrate that fusion power is possible. Uh, but then it'll have to be it'll have you know the, the step to to build power stations using this is probably half a century away. Yeah. But so it, that's the, it's good, it's good to I'm know gonna... it can happen. It's great to know that can happen. Yeah, and the yeah. other um, little
0: leap forward that was announced last week uh, from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Was that uh, Australian scientists have discovered an enzyme that can uh, convert air into? Anything. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, this and is fabulous, and they've good. published their findings in the journal Nature. But basically, uh, if they can harness this, uh, it will lead to um, you know uh, mobile phone batteries being able to charge themselves from thin air. Things like that, and even they, they even think that the technology could grow to the uh, size of batteries required for electric cars and. Things like just, that yeah. will probably take a long time, but then they're talking not 50 years, but five to 10 years before this technology yeah. is rolled out. Yeah. So that's really exciting. And if you want to, you know, that's worth reading that story. It's at fizz.org Now I've got a caveat here. Um, it's phys.org. org. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Confused a few people by saying fizz.org because they think it's F-I-double-Z. And that's, or double-Z, sorry, for you Americans. But... Um, Phys. dot org, fizz dot that's what I mean when I say that. But that's a really exciting discovery, Fred. Uh,
2: yes, that's right. It, it is. It's a it's a milestone. Yeah. Um, so uh, the second part of his question, David's question, yeah. yeah. By quantum, the way, David, quantum,
0: where, uh, quantumly tangled particles entering a black hole will they say right. stay stay entangled?
2: I suppose what we mean by entering the black hole is crossing the event horizon because that's the yes. bit where um, and and. Um, I don't know the answer to this <laughs> um and I'm just trying to think i mean we you know as Hawking radiation comes about because of virtual particles springing into existence at the event horizon and one goes in and the other comes out um so they 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 turn into real particles uh i i i, I honestly don't know what would happen to entangled black uh, particles entering a black hole no. I was try to find out for you, David. Uh, I'm coming to Canada next year, actually, so um, maybe I'll, you know, talk about it then. <laughs> I'll, I'll be there uh, in May this year. Uh, yeah, of course you are. Yeah, you're, you're heading, in, heading there in May. Three years uh, let's, um Let's just kind of put a bit of a lid on Entanglement, though, and yeah. all these mysteries, because what I'd like to do is refer everyone to a Scientific American article which appeared... Actually, it's just appeared. It's appeared wow. only this week, February thirteenth, twenty twenty-three, um, which is headlined, and it kind of this echoes what I was saying earlier. Quantum entanglement isn't all that spooky after all. Uh, and uh, what the author of this, whose name is Chris Ferry, says is the way we teach quantum theory conveys a spookiness that isn't actually there. And I would, uh, I would actually recommend. Uh all our listeners who are interested in quantum entanglement uh, to read that because because it, it it is you know it it is all less always less spooky than what what we conveyed. Um it's it's a really interesting phenomenon, but it doesn't break the speed limit of the universe. That's the bottom line. Okay. Again, sorry, David,
0: can't answer your question, but it's read quantum entanglement and, and Fred hasn't got the right packet of cornflakes yet to get his um, particle physics certificate so that he can answer the question. <laughs> so he's going to keep buying cereal but, until it turns up. <laughs> Do you remember that old joke? He got his driver's license from a cornflakes packet? <laughs> yes. Particle it's,
2: physics. I think my dad did, actually.
0: <laughs> dear, ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, David. One more quick question, and it's, oh, it's an easy one. Uh, it's all about black holes. This is <laughs> from Duncan.
1: Hello, this is Duncan here from Weymouth in Dorset in the UK. Um, Quick question. Can you explain in layman's terms, please, how black holes merge? That is to say, if nothing can escape from a black hole, when two black holes come together, how do they interact surely they would literally just roll around each other because neither one could allow anything to escape from the other to merge them into one hole Um, there probably is a simple answer but I can't think of it because nothing can get out of a black hole therefore how can they possibly join together into one big one because they would just wrap around each other maybe you could explain that for me Keep up the good work. Glad that you're back. Risk you over Christmas. So, anyway, thanks for the answer. Bye. Bye. Thanks, uh, Duncan. Um, stop
0: making trouble for yourself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: Such an easy question. Um, uh, <laughs> but I see the logic of his thinking. Yes, so I if do if too. Nothing can get out. How can <clears throat> they get together?
2: <clears throat> well, um, the the bottom line is nothing can get out but stuff can get in yeah well it <laughs> uh, comes down to which one's the bigger black hole doesn't yeah uh, this so when you look at um, i mean the uh you know the classics uh studies of merging black holes have come from LIGO from the uh laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory in the USA um when they made, in fact the first gravitational wave uh observation that was made, that was uh, verified, was in 2015. Or I think it was released in 2016, but for an event that occurred in 2015. In fact, on Mali's birthday, the 14th of September. That's why I remember it. Um, uh, and it was two black holes merging. Yeah. And uh, it, so the gravitational waves that that emitted fitted the theory perfectly. And the theory says... That you'll get exactly as um, as Duncan has, uh, su- has suggested, Th- these two black holes will spin around one another uh, in ever increasing speed, uh, getting relativistic—that's to say, getting near the speed of light, getting ever closer to one another—and uh, then basically they just merge. They do merge. They're not, uh, prop- uh, you know, they're not um, constricted from merging by the fact that they're black holes. They are gravitationally attractive. Each one is attracted to the other with an enormous force. Uh, So if you imagine, think of them as singularities, they don't have any dimensions, Uh, then they basically just add together uh, with a colossal release of energy, uh, which is why their masses don't necessarily add up. Um, So it's not uh, that much of a conundrum. The um, that the, the The one thing that is released is gravitational energy, uh, and that comes about because they 're gravitationally highly highly um, att- attractive bodies um, uh, there 's not really that much to add i i mean there's uh, what they called what they were referring to in the in the um, uh, LIGO results was a i think it 's called a ring down. Uh, which is the last bit. It's the phenomenon where the black holes themselves merge. I right. um, should check that. I think it was called a ring down. might be worth just having a look at that, Duncan, online, black hole ring down, and see what it comes up with, because that will tell you about the instant at which these black holes merge. I'd, I'd, I'd um, caution you, Duncan, that that search could, <laughs> could take Well, maybe so, yeah. Maybe, maybe yes, maybe uh, uh, astrophysics might be in the search. path. Uh, that's definitely, <laughs>
0: definitely a good idea. Not that I've ever tried it, but um, no, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's certainly a search <laughs> pattern that could take you to the wrong place. Uh, and maybe. Well, yeah, that's
2: right. <laughs> you never know where you're going to work, up. Oh, not you? You don't,
0: do you? It's, the, <laughs> the internet's a lottery.
2: It is sometimes.
0: If but uh, at... but Org. I don't know where that takes
2: you. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Noin. Uh, anyway, it's a great question. Uh, Duncan I hope all is well down there in Weymouth I'm sure it is I suppose it's up here up there from down here, here.
1: <laughs> yeah. but
2: then again I'd
0: maintain that the universe is upside down which puts us on top so well, well yes that's, that's, that's my probably
1: theory. true yeah mm.
0: All right, Duncan, thank you. Lovely to hear from you. Thank you to everybody who's sending questions. We've got a whole bunch of others uh, to go through, which we'll tackle over coming episodes. But if you do have a question for us, uh, go to our website and send it to us. You can do that by going to spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. Uh, Now, if you click on the AMA link, which I'm doing right now, it will take you to a page that says, be a part of the show, leave an audio question for Andrew and Fred and have it answered in the Q&A segment of the podcast. And you can simply um, send us a text form question uh, by filling out the form, or you can hit the record button and away you go. Or if you want to just do it the easy way without having to click on another page, Just click on the send us your voice message on the right-hand side and it will do just that. Don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. And while you're on our website, uh, have a look around, find out about becoming a a patron, uh, go to the Space Nuts shop, you can get the latest news from the Astronomy Daily newsletter and so much more at spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. We spent millions of dollars to own both of those uh, URLs, so... uh, Yep. That's where the big bucks go, just so we can keep our website alive. Uh, we're uh, finished, Fred. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Andrew. Um, thanks for bearing with those half-baked explanations about entanglement. Well, you um, know, but, yeah. uh, we, we strive for adequacy. Ad- adequacy is all. <laughs> and it's
0: good to know we, we sometimes achieve it.
2: Uh, no problem. Nice good to, to catch up, Fred. will yeah. next week. See you later. Okay,
0: bye-bye. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and thanks to Hugh in the studio who uh, is stirring his tea and pushing a couple of buttons uh, on his phone because he doesn't know how to use it yet. Uh, Technology, you know. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for listening. Looking forward to your company on the very next episode of Space Nuts.